0: Welcome to an Overdrive episode of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. Well, folks, today, this is where we kind of put an end to Nikita Khrushchev. I know, last week we put an end to him. But actually, this time, I'm going to do one more reading from his book, Khrushchev Remembers, The Last Testament. You know, when I started this series on Khrushchev, I kind of thought that this man was kind of the the bad guy. Because as I grew up as a child... Nikita Khrushchev was the leader of Russia for about six years in my early days, and he was the man that my parents really despised. He was the epitome of communism, the crazy communists who had destroyed my mother's homeland. But as I start reading about him, I understand his feelings and how he looked at the problems of the Soviet Union, and how I think he kind of understood that the system was the problem, not the people. And he also is saying this, and he's this reading here this comes about after he's lost his power and how he feels about what's going on with Brezhnev, Kosygin, Podgorny, and that group. Uh, he doesn't mention them by names, but it's pretty apparent who he's uh, aiming his barbs at. Under Brezhnev, and you're going to hear this in the coming weeks, there was a true stagnation going on in the Soviet Union during his time. of 18 years, from 1964 to 82. Not for the military, though, but for the consumer. So this chapter we're going to be reading is entitled The Plight of the Consumer. So let's get to it. When the state mismanages agriculture, the average Soviet citizen suffers. How do we know when the state is mismanaging agriculture? I believe the food counters more than I believe the statistics I read. For that matter, I think the mood of the average housewife is a better indicator than the Bureau of Statistics about the health of our economy. As I've already said, our statisticians sometimes deliberately distort reality. The rosy figures they publish in the newspapers can't be sold in the stores and made into soup. What does the mood of the housewives tell us? What do the food counters in the stores indicate about the current level of our economy? They tell us that all is not well, that the state has failed to satisfy both the quantitative and the qualitative demands of our consumers. Even in Moscow, which has always enjoyed special privileges, shoppers can't be sure of finding the meat they want. There's also a shortage of eggs and poultry. In fact, if you're determined to buy chicken, you'll probably have to settle for poultry imported from Holland and other countries. These birds are usually too fat for our people's taste, and the Dutch chicken has the additional disadvantage of smelling like fish. The situation with dairy products is apparently better than with beef, pork, and poultry, although I understand butter is in short supply. Good fish is especially hard to come by. Recently, I was in the hospital. And a very aristocratic hospital it was, too. You could order pike perch, which is one of my favorite dishes. But it turned out to be practically inedible. It must have been frozen and refrozen several times. Whatever they did to it, the stuff stuck in my throat like cork. In general, our people aren't very demanding. If there's frozen pike perch in the stores, they'll buy it up in as great a quantity as they can. The same is true with vegetables. It's spring now, and as always, there's a vegetable shortage. Cucumbers and tomatoes are terribly expensive. So is ordinary lettuce, which is of very poor quality. There's a new, high-quality lettuce, which looks like cabbage, but it's available only to special people. You'd never find it in a peasant market or in a grocery store. Nor can you find decent corn. Our consumers love corn especially the Russians, Ukrainians, and Moldavians, to say nothing of the Georgians, Armenians, and other southern peoples for whom corn used to be a staple. Now they simply can't find it anywhere. Sometimes we've bought corn from speculators in a peasant market, but it usually turns out to be silage corn, fit only for pigs and cows. There's absolutely no reason at all why high-quality corn shouldn't be available to our consumers. It grows well around Moscow. As I've already mentioned, I have some growing in my own vegetable garden. We often serve it to friends and family, and it's always a special treat for them. I remember when I was in the hospital. I heard the doctors rushing to the cafeteria because words had spread that some Bulgarian canned summer squash was available to the medical staff. The doctors were buying as many cans as they could. I overheard someone complaining. Dr. So-and-so bought five cans, and I couldn't get a single one. The doctors were surprised when I told them that summer squash grows well around Moscow, and that I have some in my garden. If it's bad in Moscow, it's worse in the provinces. I sometimes meet people from Kiev, Ryazin, Kalinin, Ryansk, and other regions. I always find it a bit awkward to talk to them, because inevitably, a shortage of food comes up. They tell me loudly and bitterly how eggs and meat are simply unavailable, and how they have to take a couple of days of travel to Moscow by train in order to shop for groceries, and spend hours standing in line when they get there. Just the other day, I met a couple of vacationers near my dacha. They'd been staying at a resort not too far from here, they told me they were going home to Riazan and they sighed unhappily when they said it. Life is very hard in Riazan they explained. At least in the city, we can get meat sometimes. But in the surrounding villages, it's absolutely impossible. That conversation reminds me of a story about the gypsy who decides to join the party. May I become a member of the party, he asks. Yes he's told. But first, you must fulfill certain requirements. First, work hard. Second, stop stealing, drinking, and chasing after women. The gypsy throws up his arms in despair and cries, if I can't do those things, what's the point in living? Of course, the person who made up this story somewhat oversimplified the character of gypsies. But the joke still makes a good point. People want to enjoy life. It's not enough to have just the bare essentials. As they say, man shall not live by bread alone. In our country, we've reached the stage where people are no longer starving. There's enough grain for bread, but I repeat, not by bread alone. We've come to the point now when there should be enough butter to spread on the bread, and there should be meat to put in the soup. I remember talking once with an American businessman, the president or director of some firm from which we bought a poultry processing plant for one of our state farms in the Crimea. Once the plant was operating, we found that we had to expend five kilograms of feed for every kilo of body weight, while the Americans were fattening up their chickens with only three kilos of feed per kilo of body weight. How could we compete with the U.S.? If there was such a vast discrepancy, I was simply ashamed to talk with the president of the American firm, just as it fills me with shame to hear that we're importing chicken from relatively small countries like France, to say nothing of Holland. I asked the American what our problem was. Well, he said, for one thing, you didn't allow our specialists to go to the state farm and install the equipment. We were told that the farm is in the secret district where no foreigners are allowed. That was ridiculous. Except for our submarine bases, there were no prohibited zones in the Crimea. No, the refusal to let the American specialists onto our state farm was a sort of bureaucratic holdover from Stalin's time that still hasn't been liquidated. The same American businessman recommended that we set up a bacon factory. He offered to sell us the license an industrial meat processing plant that would employ 125 people and produce a quarter million kilos of pork. He also guaranteed that we'd have to expend only 3.5 kilos of feed per kilo of body weight. How does that compare with the ratio we've been getting? It takes us at least five and more like seven kilos of feed per kilo of body weight. In other words, Americans are getting twice the efficiency we are. Why? Because they have the science, the specialization. For us to match them would have meant setting up specific institutes. Yet, along with this businessman, we made a very attractive offer. We'll give you everything you need, the equipment for mechanized production of feed all the latest technological elements the cost of purchasing the license would have been more than repaid in the savings we would have realized from the more efficient production of feed for cattle and poultry as a result we would have been able to produce more meat and eggs think of all the thousands and thousands of people who would have bought all those products if they were available the purchase of the product would have helped absorb the surplus of paper money which puts such pressure on our economy and leads the state to raise prices, often in secret. I made a report to the presidium of the Central Committee, urging that we buy the license for the bacon factory. I think it certainly would have been better from an economic standpoint to buy that license rather than one for a fiat automobile plant. In the first place, a fiat is a product that only a limited quantity of people can use. In the second place, We already have pretty good cars of our own. Our own Zaporozhets, our Moskvich, our Volga, to say nothing of our classier cars. As though it weren't enough to have that Fiat plant on the Volga River, a lot of equipment has been bought from Renault in France, and a truck factory has been built on the Kama River. What's the matter with our own Soviet-made trucks? I'm not denying that foreign makes of automobiles are nicer to look at than ours, and maybe better in other respects, too. I'm just saying that after 50 years of Soviet power, we're still suffering from shortages in the vital areas of meat and eggs. So before we go around purchasing foreign auto factories, we should concentrate on organizing the production of feed for our livestock, pigs and poultry, on an industrial basis. We still lag seriously behind the communist or the capitalist world in food production. It makes good economic and political sense to put the interests of millions who want to be well-fed above the interests of thousands who get pleasure out of buying a fiat. That's my view. Unfortunately, I'm not in the leadership, and the new leadership either has a different perception of the situation or has lost touch with the true state of affairs. I met a man recently who asked me, Say, Comrade Khrushchev, do you think a camel would make it all the way from Moscow to Vladivostok? I could tell from the way he was smiling that there was more to the question than met the eye. I answered cautiously, Well, the camel is a strong animal with lots of stamina, so I think he could probably walk all the way to to Vladivostok. No, Comrade Khrushchev, you're wrong. The camel would be lucky to make it as far as Sverdlovsk. Why? Because assuming he gets to Sverdlovsk, the people there would eat him. There's a certain amount of truth in that story. It says something about the shortage of food in the towns and villages across our country. I look forward to the day when a camel would be able to walk from Moscow to Vladivostok without being eaten by hungry peasants or villagers along the way. Food, of course, is the most essential need of our people, but we must also satisfy their aesthetic demands. Man loves flowers. Without flowers, life would be terribly tedious. It's time for our leadership to realize that those goods which add to the beauty of life are not superfluous, they are basic. If our government's allocation of resources were more sensible, we might be able to satisfy both the aesthetic and the nutritional demands of our people. Economics is a complicated thing. It involves supply, prices, and wages. When I was in the leadership, we tried to improve the intolerable situation in which pensioners and people who had lost their means of livelihood were were living. It was unthinkable to leave them on such miserable pensions as they were being paid. So we raised their pensions. The people were grateful. I remember once, when I was walking along the street in Rostov, all men came running up to me and said, Thank you, Comrade Khrushchev. Thank you for our pensions. Despite improvements we made, the wage picture is still fairly gloomy. Not long ago, I happened to meet a couple on vacation. They were young, although they already had two children, one 13 and the other 11. I asked the man and woman, what they did and how much they made. The White said she was a medical assistant and she only made 80 rubles a month. It's not much at all, Comrade Khrushchev, she said. Yes, it's very little, I replied. But they're promising to raise wages. I know they are, but it's still not much money. How about you, I asked, turning to her husband. He said that he was a candidate of technical sciences and earned 130 rubles a month. That strikes me as very low pay, especially considering that there are now categories of workers that make as least, if not more. In general, I'd say that the wage situation in our country is all messed up, and it doesn't show many signs of getting straightened out. The fair distribution of wealth produced by our people is absolutely essential to the preservation and strengthening of our Soviets, society's monolithic quality, its stability. I've never been in favor of reducing everyone and everything to the same level, but at the same time, I'm against discrimination. In short, I believe in the rational distribution of wealth so that there will neither be too much nor too little difference in the incomes of various categories of workers. So much for wages. What about prices? Not only must must we supply our consumers with more and better products, but we must also keep prices down. People I meet often ask me about our government's price policies when I was in leadership. I remember someone saying, Tell me, please. Comrade Khrushchev, why did you pass a law changing the value of our currency? Didn't the government do that in order to raise prices? The government had no such thing in mind, I say. Who exactly proposed the change? What difference does it make? It was a government initiative. It happened to be proposed by Finance Minister Zevrev. He reported to me, and he was directly concerned with such matters. Kosygin, as my deputy, had purview over the Finance Ministry and the State Bank. Later he took on other responsibilities as well. In any case, Zevrev, Kosygin, and I were proceeding from the fact that costs and revenues had grown many times over, and that it was very complicated to work with such astronomical figures. It complicated bookkeeping. We decided to multiply the ruble by 10, so that something which had cost 10 kopecks would now cost 1, and what had cost a ruble would now cost 10 kopecks. This currency reform was simply a matter of convenience. It did nothing to raise the price of products. The person I was talking to wasn't convinced. I don't care what you say. The prices went up. I told him that was ridiculous and worked out the figures with him. People I meet often ask me why there are so many disguised price increases nowadays. They describe how the brand name of a certain product changes and the price goes up, while the product remains the same. For example, there was recently been a disguised price increase for vodka. This measure has been justified as a way of controlling drunkenness. I, too, once thought by raising the price of vodka, we could bring the level of consumption down. But it didn't work. The only result was that family budgets were hit harder than before, and people had even less money to spend on necessary goods. Besides, it makes people angry when the government arbitrarily raises prices. No one wants to pay more money just for a new brand name. When people come to me with complaints about price increases nowadays, I always reply, What are you telling me for? Take your questions to the people who made the decisions and determine the policy. I'm just a pensioner. What do you expect me to do? What happens when one of our consumers goes to a state store, buys a low-quality product, and finds he has to pay more money for it than the last time? He starts cursing those who are responsible. That's what happens. Or maybe he can't find what he's looking for at all and has to go to a peasant market where he ends up paying two or three times more than he would have paid in a state store if the product had been available there. To make the situation more complicated, our consumers have developed a marked preference for hard-to-find imported goods, which satisfy their aesthetic demands much better than domestically manufactured products. As a result of these factors, it is difficult to be a consumer in our society and it's all too easy to imagine the foul mood in which our consumers return from their shopping expeditions. I believe that we can compete successfully with capitalism only if we alter the priorities and organizational structure of our economy so as to supply our citizens with the food and consumer goods they want. A man labors and lives in order to satisfy his material and spiritual needs, If capitalism satisfies these requirements better than socialism, it will become increasingly difficult for us to propagate our point of view and consolidate our way of life. Eventually, we will run the danger of losing everything, of going bankrupt. The danger is political as well as economic. Just look at what happened recently in Danzig and the other Baltic cities in Poland. I have nothing against comrade Gierek. He's a good communist. But so was comrade Gomulka before him. Gomulka was no less devoted to the ideals of communism than Gierek. Yet by failing to solve the acute economic problems facing his country, especially in the consumer section, Gomulka lost touch with the masses. His fatal mistake was his decision to raise prices and to deny people the consumer products they were clamoring for. As a result, the bottom fell out of Gomułka's leadership. What happened in Poland represents a lesson for us. The events on the Baltic coast were a direct result of a food shortage and a consumer revolt against rising prices. That's one of the reasons I'm especially concerned about the shortages and disguised price increases in our own economy. It's time for us to realize that the teachings of Marx, Engels, and Lenin cannot be hammered into people's heads only in the classroom and newspapers and at political rallies. Agitation and propaganda on behalf of Soviet power must also be carried on in our restaurants and cafeterias. Our people must be able to use their wages to buy high-quality products manufactured under socialism, if they were ultimately to accept our system and reject capitalism. Of course, the Chinese would disagree with me on this point. They'd fill our ears with a lot of Mao Zedong's gibberish. During the Cultural Revolution, Mao criticized us for trying to satisfy the demands of the Soviet people. The Chinese started hooting and hollering about how we were guilty of economism. Now, said we should reject material incentives and motivate our people with revolutionary ideas. But you can't make soup out of an idea. I know some of our own bureaucrats might accuse me of slander simply because I mention all these problems over bureaucratization of our society, insufficient attention to the needs of the consumer, and so on. But I don't think I'm slandering the Soviet Union at all. I hope that sensible people who read my memoirs will understand that, despite all the deficiencies that still exist in our country, I have nothing but the highest respect and gratitude for those who have made a genuine contribution to the improvement of our economy. Moreover, my criticisms are meant to be constructive. In my old age, I find myself worrying more than ever about the future. I would hate to see the Soviet Union impeded in its progress by its own bureaucracy. If we can keep ourselves from getting bogged down, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. Our greatest strength and hope is hard work. Honest toil is tiring, but it's also rewarding. I miss work myself. I'm now 77 years old, older than I ever thought I'd live to be when I was a youth. For seven years I've been living in retirement, and often I've been miserable about being deprived of the ability to work for the good of our society. Sometimes the idleness of my life is an unbearable moral anguish. But I shouldn't complain. I'm fortunate, at least, to have an opportunity to dictate my memoirs about the development of our agriculture and economy. I've been absorbed in this task and I only hope my efforts will be as useful for others as they've been interesting for me. It's difficult for me to stop, but I'm tired now. I must rest, at least for a little while. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Some very insightful things I would imagine that came out of this. He was worried about the continuation of the Soviet Union and its bankruptcy, which eventually did happen. In the 1990s. And that I've been doing some reading on is a very fascinating uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union and everything that it stood for. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And as always, don't forget to visit Facebook and and come on into our Russian Rulers History podcast group where we've had some very lively discussions, sharing of some really fantastic links. Uh, Recently, there was a link, uh, Mentonio, that was uh, pictures. From Russia, you can see these pictures in color, of what Russia looked like under the Czars in the early 1900s, and some of the other discu- discussions from our other members of our group. It's been really fascinating to see what they've been able to share and the questions they're asking and the debates going on. Also, if you have uh, an iPhone, those of you who were lucky enough to get a iPhone 5 soon, uh, you can download one of our uh, the Russian Rulers uh, phone app. So you can listen to this and keep up to date with it on your iPhone. But as always, I'd like to thank you all for listening and Das Vinya spasiba Bolshoya.